Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Arbato. Yes, we are doing this program remotely from my home in uh, beautiful Montclair, New Jersey. Mary, where are you? I'm in beautiful Westfield, New Jersey. And uh, now that we're a couple episodes in from our home environments, I'm getting very comfortable doing this. I, I think it's a very nice environment and it's uh, pretty cool. It sure is. I wanna, and by the way, in the spirit of what it takes to make things happen to Elvin and Frank and our son, Nick, um, not Mary and I, we don't have a son together. She has different <laughs> teenage boys, but our son, Nick, who's helping on the technical side, uh, because listen, it, it does take a village. Sometimes it takes more than a village and we're constantly learning how to do this, make it more effective, make sure that the sound is great, the picture is great, and most importantly, the content is great. Mary, let folks know who the funders are of Lessons in Leadership and then let's drive people to our website because everything is free, all the articles, all the recommendations for books, particularly in the age of COVID-19 as we're trying to be the best leaders we can be. Go ahead, Mary. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, the people who help to make this possible, we have Prager Metis, we have the International Union of Operating Engineers, New Jersey Resources, Valley Bank, and Gibbons Law Firm. And you can log on to our website, stand-deliver.com. As Steve said, we have a ton of great articles, resources, past editions of Lessons in Leadership. Or if you're a podcast person, if you like going that route, uh, you could uh, subscribe to us on Google Play as well as on Apple Podcasts. And folks are possibly watching us right now on the News 12 family, on News 12 Plus. You can catch us every Sunday at 10 a.m. I have that right, Mary? That is absolutely correct on News 12 Plus. And also followed at 1030 by our sister program, Think Tank, which is produced by our not-for-profit production company, the Caucus Educational Corporation. So listen, Mary, we are honored. We've had her in the studio before, but now we have her remotely, but she's even better this way. She's our great friend and colleague and one of the greatest leaders you're going to find anywhere in the state and the region and the nation, Micheline Davis, who is the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer, R.W.J. Barnabas Health. How are you, my friend? I am well, my friend. How are you? Doing great. Micheline, let me ask you this. Um, we've talked to all kinds of leaders about how they are managing, dealing with, coping with COVID-19. But for you and the position you are in, at RWJ Barnabas Health. And how many hospitals are we talking about here? Mm. So we are talking about uh, 11 acute care hospitals, uh, three children's hospitals, the state's largest behavioral hospital, uh, and the state's uh, largest uh, behavioral and um, physical rehab facility for children. For you, in the role that you are in, which has changed, it's always been challenging, but challenging in a totally different way and in, in ways no one could have imagined. What would you say the number one leadership challenge you are facing, have faced over the last few months? So I think that uh, the last few months have been really interesting, Steve, and great question. Uh, I think one of the, the most challenging uh, issues that we're facing as we lead our teams is really ensuring that our teams feel that we are present for them. Right? So that means being overly responsive, um, being proactive and touching them, making certain that um, they understand that the work that they do is really keenly important, but also that they are, right? Making certain that you're reaching out in between your formal meetings in order to check on their status, on the status of, of, of their families, and, and really important that they understand and hear from you two things. One, um, that, that you want them to be okay. And two, that it's okay if in fact they're not okay every day, right? What, are the, what do you mean by that? 
Well, in this day and age of working from home for those um, uh, of us who are incredibly privileged enough to do so, um, you know, what's really interesting is that the work day, right, fades a little. Uh, I don't know about you, but- It but bleeds. What's the difference That's, between work and your, and your home life, Micheline? What, what is the, where's the barrier? Where's the wall? it all fades in together, right? And so it bleeds over into each other, right? Um, so ours are that much more expansive. Uh, so despite the fact that team members are home, I've still encouraged team members to be uh, self-aware, right? To check in with themselves um, and to take a day where they need to take a day, right? If they were at work and we were working these hours right now in the middle of a pandemic in healthcare, um, I, I dare say that, that there would be a few who needed for a moment um, uh, to take a mental health day. So I've been encouraging them to, to really make certain that they are okay in that space and that they take that opportunity too, albeit the fact that they're working from home. Mary, jump in. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that recommendation of the mental health day. I think so many of us, and Steve and I have struggled with this at five, six, seven o'clock at night, the computer's still there. I'm still responding to emails and you don't know how to turn it off. But a lot of us, and especially you in healthcare, you can't always turn it off. So how do you balance that? And how do you, um, I find myself often getting frustrated and getting short tempered uh, because- I've noticed. You know, Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> hey, yesterday you did notice, and that was real. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We, I shared too much. Go ahead. <laughs> and no, but there are times when it's literally like I need to eat. I need, you know, I need to have a hot meal. And you know, you get a call. You, you know. So how do you really set those boundaries? When luckily, Steve and I. I mean, we worked together for 20 years, so I feel comfortable saying to Steve, Steve, listen, I just heated up my meal. I want to have a hot lunch for the first time in a month. Um, but, but how do you, you know, recommend to others who maybe don't have that comfortable relationship with the person they report to, to say, Hey, listen, I need some me time. I want to be clear, Micheline, before you answer, she finishes it in all seriousness by saying, so don't call me in the next <laughs> hour, unless it's really important. Stop and, and, with the text messages. To be I get fair, it. No, it's no. never an hour. I say, give me 10 minutes and I'll get right back to you. I, I yeah, but, but, but that level of candor that level of Michelin said, I'm not, all right. Mary's like, I'm not all right. Stop, leave me alone for a while. And we're that close and that comfortable, but that's important Michelin, isn't it? It's incredibly important, uh, Steve, and great point, Mary. Um, so I think two things. One, I think for those of us in leadership um, who have supervisory uh, authority and, and uh, really a role over teams, it is incumbent upon us that we empower them to do so, right? Um, long gone are the days of power distancing. If in fact you are leading a group of individuals who do not feel empowered enough to speak to you in candor about what their uh, mental health or physical well-being needs are, then quite frankly, there's a problem and you should probably, I don't know, reach out to a good coach I know named Steve Adubato. I mean, I, I really <laughs> think that there is something to be said of that. For those who are on teams who are either uncertain about that or quite frankly feel that there might not be um, a, an issue or an opportunity in order to do that, listen, I, I have to say to them, this is where you get to be a leader from whatever role you serve in, no matter what your title is, i.e. So when you speak up and say that among your group, you empower your colleagues, your coworkers to do the same. But along the same lines of what Micheline is saying, we have a mutual friend, Micheline and I, together with Mary, we have a lot of mutual friends. And this mutual friend, Mary and I were talking to the other day, our good friend, Larry Downs. And Larry has been the, had been the CEO of New Jersey Resources for many, many years. And we were talking to him about some things that, that he's involved in now. 
And he kept pushing this issue. He said, you know, everyone's a leader at every level. Now, for his old company or the company he used to be with, New Jersey Resources, he was talking about meter readers. They had to be leaders. And I say this all the time because it triggered in my mind. Micheline, those frontline workers you talk about, those physicians, those nurses, those attendants, those incredibly important technicians, frontline, they are leaders. Talk about that. So two things. One, um, you mentioned Larry Downs, and so I cannot be in a public space and not give full disclosure. Um, I am completely biased. I think he's a wonderful testament of the best of humankind, period. We agree. He's tremendous. He's a tremendous person. Um, uh, as the frontline workers, uh, you are absolutely correct. Um, they are indeed leaders. But Steve, I want to make certain that we also mention, yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely uh, accurate. The physicians, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, um, right? Everyone there. But so is, right, the um, cafeteria service worker, the person who comes in to clean up uh, the rooms after patient discharge. Um, so is the maintenance worker who is really working in the face of this in order to keep our, our grounds uh, uh, upkept as best as possible, as is your food delivery person and the person who's shelving those groceries. So, so when we talk about leadership, it really is every day that they decide, I'm going to come back. Uh, every day that they decide, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring a little bit of sunshine with me so that the rest of those with whom I work um, uh, do not have to feel like they only have despair as a choice. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring with me a lightness that in the middle of darkness, I can make certain that I at least give one other person hope. Each and every act of that is actually an act of true leadership. You know, Mary and I were talking a lot about fear. <clears throat> and uh, actually, we're, it was one of the interviews we did with uh, Barry Ostrowski, the, the uh, CEO of RWJ Barnabas Health. This whole issue of fear, it comes up with a lot of people. And we were debating the question of, how, do you show fear? Do you show vulnerability? Do you show it? So, so those frontline workers that you just described and talked about and honored so eloquently, they have fear. They have fear of getting sick. And worse, they have families. They have fear because they want to protect their families. The Churchill quote, Mary, that Kevin uh, Cummings showed, talked to us. What did he say about Churchill? He said, uh, uh, fear, "Yeah, fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision." Micheline right. Davis, is courage a decision? Absolutely. Listen, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the act of bravery in the midst of fear. There is a, a, a firm and distinct difference. You know, uh, there are, are lots of acronyms that folks indicate that fear stands for. One is false evidence appearing real, right? That's when they say that you should have faith in the good. And uh, faith is full assurance in the heart. But, you know, it can also stand for face everything and rise. And say so that again. Face everything face and everything rise. everything and rise, right? So that is a choice. That is a courageous choice. That is understanding what is coming at you, understanding that there is incredible uncertainty, right? Um, and that there's a, a real issue to be afraid of and nevertheless going forward. Are and you that afraid? Is what, uh, absolutely. But? Absolutely. But I am still here. We are still in the fight. We are still 
pushing forward and I will not give up. I, I think you know me by now, Steve and Mary. I, I, unfortunately, I am the eternal optimist. And so I, I firmly believe that there is still some incredible outrageous good that is going to come out of this. We are going to see mankind rise to a level of humanity and, and empathy one for another that's going to go uh, through this, the sense of empathy, just empathy, and literally arrive at compassion, right? And so if we had communal coastal compassion, what could we do if we literally decided by making a choice to be the best of ourselves? And There's an opportunity here. Go ahead, Mary. Oh, no, it just... happens remotely. Normally, when I interrupt, <laughs> we look at each other's body language. By the way, I'm going to show everyone this trick. I was talking to Micheline about this before, and we'll, we'll get into the details of communicating <laughs> remotely. I'm looking at Mary right now. I'm looking at Micheline right now on the screen. But the reality is I have to look into this camera <laughs> so that it appears to you watching that I'm looking at them. But go ahead. I'm sorry, Mary. Next time, Steve, I'll just do this. So even if you're looking at the camera, you can know that I want to speak up. <laughs> yes, please share, Mary. Go ahead. Michelin. By the way, Micheline's going to stay with us for on a second segment. We're going to talk about gender equity issues, pay equity issues, the fact that a absurd, totally unacceptable number of uh, minority black and brown citizens are being affected by COVID-19 and dying because of COVID-19 in a second follow-up segment. Go ahead, Mary. Yes, uh, you were talking a lot about leadership and how we're coming out uh, as more compassionate adults. And Steve and I have talked a lot throughout this of how our young leaders, uh, say teenagers, you know, young men and women, I truly believe that they are gonna come out on the other side of this with more grit, with more determination, with just an overall sense of, hey, you wanna know what? We're gonna get creative and we're gonna be problem solvers and, and move through this. Do you agree? So I would certainly hope so, Mary. You know, one of the things that I've heard from very many of my colleagues, um, I do not have children of my own, but, but as you know, I have nine godchildren. Um, and so in speaking with their mothers, you know, uh, uh, and fathers, they're, they're often somewhat concerned about whether or not they've given them too much, right? And I am completely guilty of all of that. Um, uh, but they've talked about, you know, we haven't really given them uh, the opportunity of hardship in order to develop a level of resistance, right? Um, it's one of the things that we talk about when we worry about, you know, things like uh, youth suicide, which, which was on a rise before the pandemic hit. Um, uh, I, I would hope that they would see this current issue as exactly that, as a reason to be more concerned about uh, those around them uh, and really a chance to take a look at some of the inequities in society that Steve uh, just mentioned that we'll talk about uh, on another segment in order to figure out how they can bring their incredible uh, technological advanced minds and their innovation to that space in order to indeed be more resilient on the other side. Well, real quick before we go to this break, all that technological know-how, all the ability not just to use this phone for a million different things, but to, to use this technology without heart, without compassion, without empathy, without genuine concern for your fellow man and woman. It's just technology. Hey, listen, Micheline's going to stay with us. Uh, Mary, plug the website again and our funders before we go to a break. Sure thing. So our, <clears throat> our website is stand-deliver.com. We have a lot of valuable free resources up there, great articles on leadership and communicating in a crisis and other situations. And our funders are Prager Metis. We have International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, New Jersey Resources, Valley Bank, and Gibbons PC uh, Law Firm. And by the way, we do uh, leadership development and coaching for all of those entities. We also do it at RWJ Barnabas Health for a group of terrific 
leaders, helping them communicate and connect more effectively. And that does not stop uh, in the midst of COVID-19. We're going to take a quick break on Lessons in Leadership. Be back with Micheline Davis right after this. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by Gibbons PC, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, New Jersey Resources, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. That is, you'll see her on camera, my co-host and executive producer of the series, Mary Gamba. And Mary, we continue to be joined. We continue to have Micheline Davis, who is, in fact, the executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer, RWJ Barnabas Health. Micheline, let's shift gears. I want to talk about something that you and I talk about a lot offline. You've written about this. You've been published on this. How could it be that so many people people of color are disproportionately, based on the population, getting sick and dying from COVID-19. Why is that happening? So Steve, thank you for the question uh, and for paying attention to the topic. Um, I think that the uh, national discussion has turned in this direction, that those of us who uh, have been really fighting to reduce and indeed eliminate healthcare disparities for some time are not surprised. Um, this is literally not something that is happening episodically. It is uh, really the accumulation of uh, systemic and structural issues that have existed for uh, decades really just coming to bear right now. Uh, and so as a result of that, what you see is the fact that these individuals, uh, many of whom already either grew up in and or currently reside in densely populated uh, urban environments really are, are those who have long-term suffered with chronic health issues, um, but those chronic health issues have been contributed to as a result of their environments, as well as uh, just systemic and structural, uh, quite frankly, policies and, and zoning, uh, i.e. redlining, et cetera, that have really contributed to their outcomes. Micheline, sorry for interrupting. Are, those, are we talking about the social determinants of health? Is that what we're talking about? We are, Steve. Thank you very much for You've, for you've taught us that. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you know, the social determinants of health are those things which uh, uh, really impact your health outcomes that are outside of just your visit to a doctor's office. So where you live, um, uh, whether or not it's a safe neighborhood and safe environment, whether or not you live in uh, safe and affordable housing, or are you literally living in a space that has um, issues that, that uh, uh, really come from uh, mold, et cetera, um, whether or not your air is pollution-free, or whether or not you live in one of the communities I just mentioned, that as a result of historical and intentional zoning and redlining, winds up being in an environment where others who primarily look the same reside, but then akin to that, right, within that environment, you also have a tendency to see higher um, uh, industrial um, plants, right? So then you'd have um, the county's um, garbage incinerator would be there, uh, a tire factory, a cement factory, and all those things tend to also be co-located within these environments. Does COVID-19 exacerbate these issues, these health issues? 
Absolutely. You know, Steve, someone called it uh, the, great, the great equalizer. And I understand their intent. I believe it was well-intended. And, and really, that was made in order to um, show that no one can be educated out of uh, um, uh, literally having COVID-19. No one can be um, wealthy enough so that you're no longer um, within that risk pool. But the issue truly is that it is not. It is just the great magnifier. What it is magnifying is the fact that we are all intricately intertwined, that what happens to the least of these, right, can also happen to the most of these. Um, what it evidences, what it shows is the fact that all of a sudden we have, we have a world that has been held up by the essential workers who make the least, and that these historical disparities, that the structural and systemic inequity that we're talking about, has always existed, again, by design, and that as a result, if we do not do something to address it now, after we can no longer say that we don't see it or we didn't know it was there. It's clear. Right? That not only will those communities be impacted, but every other community as well. So listen, um, Mary, I want you to come back in here because uh, disclose a couple of things, and I want to continue this discussion about these disparities and also about some, some male-female gender issues as well. Uh, Micheline's been a leader in this regard as well, but I want to disclose that RWJ Barnabas Health is an underwriter of our public broadcasting programming and also Micheline is on the board of our not-for-profit um, organization, the Caucus Educational Corporation. Mary, follow up because I could see how engaged you are. Thank you. Yeah. And Micheline, thank you so much for sharing. I think you're opening up a lot of people, our viewers' eyes on what the issue is. And, and in terms of uh, a lot of times you'll, uh, in reading about this, some people will say, oh, well, you know, high risk people of color, they should shelter at home. Why don't they just do that? What do you say to those people in those situations? <laughs> because, you know, it seems easy enough, shelter at home, but why, why, why is that not a real possibility? Yeah, so thank you, Mary, for that question. Um, I, I always, um, you know, I think the people who are concerned enough about um, uh, reminding us that, that, you know, that's the mandate, that's the order, that's what they should do. Um, and then I look at them like uh, two things. One, and how would you eat? Because the individuals who are stocking your shelves every day, who are driving your trucks every day, uh, that the individuals who are delivering your food every day, um, who, who literally are, are picking up your, your garbage, right? What would your community look like then, right? So, so two things. One, that's a point of privilege, right? So you are looking at that situation through a lens of your privilege, which is not, quite frankly, appreciative of the fact that that is not where everyone is, right? And a lack of uh, empathy. Indeed, my friend, a lack of empathy and so much less, uh, uh, no compassion at all. So, so one of the, the additional elements there is um, uh, also the fact that, you know, sheltering place is not necessarily um, uh, the same for all. It's one thing when, in fact, you uh, are sheltering in place and you can be socially distance, distancing within your, your home. But for those who live in um, multi-unit uh, dwellings, Sheltering at place does not necessarily mean that you are also socially, socially isolated, right? I get on an elevator to a building that has 20 stories and a public housing unit. Um, you know, I'm not certain that 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 is socially distancing. It doesn't right. it doesn't actually accomplish quite the same things. Um, I live in a multifamily unit with uh, several generations of families. They're in and out. So I, I just want to make certain that people are aware that that looks different for everybody else. It, it's not just that. Um, you know, I can stay at home and not worry about it. There are still issues 
um, that I need to, to actually address if in fact I am there. The other side of that is right in order to, to come and stock your shelves, I had to take two buses to get there. True. And that bus is crowded. Every time. Every time. And, and if you then say, we're only gonna let the bus or have the bus be one third full of people, that means you don't have that bus. You can't get to work. I mean, what Michelin has taught us over the years in many, many conversations on the air, but, but mostly off, is that we don't, that transportation is a social determinant of health. Yeah. Economics, housing, all kinds of issues. But how many of us are sitting there thinking, well, I'm gonna have to not, I'm gonna be safe, so I'm not gonna get on that bus. That bus is the only way you get to work and feed your family. Go ahead, Micheline. So I, I think that that's exactly right, Steve. Uh, and I think that there are many individuals who um, uh, have been given the, the wonderful grace and opportunity this lifetime to not experience what those harsh realities are. Listen, I am uh, a caretaker of a mother who I adore, who is an elderly woman with Alzheimer's, um, who has had a heart attack and a stroke within six months of each other uh, this year alone. Um, in the very beginning of this, I had to make the decision to send her aides home because while they are lovely, um, they take public transportation in order to get to the house, uh, in order to care for her. They live in multifamily dwellings um, with um, uh, multi-generational uh, family members. And so as a result of that, uh, the, it, the element of risk is so much higher because exposure to even one person increases that that much more. I'm, I'm again, you're right, Mary. But Alvin, just show me again. Do we only really one minute left? This is the way we're communicating with each other. Mary, is it right? One minute? Um, I don't think so. Elvin, can you give us um and while Elvin's doing that, I did want to switch gears quickly, Steve, and then I'll let you know as soon as we get that. By the way, Elvin's our director. Just it's not just any Elvin, it's Elvin yeah. <laughs> director. Go ahead, Mary, real quick. Uh, no, I was just going to say just quickly to- I just got the word. We have two minutes. Go ahead. Okay, perfect. Just to switch gears very quickly, and I know we won't totally get into it, but- You can do gender a little bit? Yeah, I do. And Micheline, you have spoken about and written about gender equity. Really, how has COVID impacted it in a one-minute snapshot? You know, what is happening? So uh, as COVID has been the great magnifier on other issues pertaining to disparities in Black and Brown communities, COVID-19 has also been um, an incredible magnifier about why it is so incredibly important and why it is such a dire need in order for us to actually achieve pay equity here, right? So, so take, for example, the impact that we're seeing on black and brown communities alone. Um, uh, add to that the fact that what we are seeing is uh, actually African-American men and Latino men dying at even a faster rate in this faster dying um, and more frequently um, uh, perishing community. Um, so we have all of these households, which now have lost that dual income as well as having lost a loved one. So, so as a result of that, imagine for a moment that you have the, the, the women who are in these households, many of whom actually 80% of which, um, uh, uh, if you combine all communities, are actually female headed households anyway, right? Add to that the issue of pay inequity. So we know that, that white women, my sisters, uh, make 82 cents to, the, to every one white male dollar. We know that African-American women make upwards of um, 65 cents, right? And then Latina women, our sisters, are at 62 cents. So take a look at what that means given this pandemic and the extension of what many of our states are under right now as to literally a shelter in place order. And we have families that are going to be going without economic 
income for a significant period of time. And then quite frankly, on the other side of that, will never be able to truly make up for what they've lost. But even had it not occurred, they were always at a disadvantage. And then we wonder why these communities can't just stand up by their own bootstraps. Well, it's because they have literally put on the bootstraps of others and not been paid for the ones that they've been building all the while. You know, Micheline has laid out so many important issues, questions, and, and we don't delude ourselves into thinking we have answered them. But she's put them on the table. I promise you the conversation will continue. Um, I just want to say thank you, Micheline, for joining us. Um, best to you, best to your mom, best <laughs> to the people on the front lines at RWJ Barnabas Health and all of the hospitals and hospital systems we work with, with those, the term heroes getting thrown around a lot. And it could never be more appropriate than it is right now for those doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, technicians, all of them. Micheline, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mary. This is Steve Adubato. That's Mary Gamba. That is Micheline Davis. Catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by Gibbons PC, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, New Jersey Resources, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. When I started working with children with autism over 25 years ago, my mission began. Autism is a multifaceted spectrum condition, which challenges our system of standard norms. What autism has taught me is that there is no cookie cutter child. Our differences ought to be celebrated, not separated. So today, take a moment to say hi or smile at someone who might be a bit different. Acceptance starts with you.